Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, no tax holiday, a new owner of the Hotel Alexandra, and could Rhode Island's Paw Sox make a move to Massachusetts? Local news you may have missed. Later in the show... Women were supposed to keep their place. There were all kinds of limitations. And here was this group of of bad girls who were taking over the building and stepping out of their place. The documentary Left on Pearl tells the story of the daring women activists who took over our Harvard building in 1971. But first, joining me in the studio, Gin Doomshus, State House reporter for Mass Live. Welcome back, Gin. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell, and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello again, Sue. Hello, Callie. And Jennifer Smith, news editor for the Dorchester Reporter. Hi again, Jennifer. Hi, Callie. Well, let's start right off with something that I've been keeping up with via the Jordan Furniture commercials. <laughs> there are there is no sales tax holiday. I know that because they told me. But the question is why, and this was actually much discussed behind the scenes, it seemed, again. Behind closed doors Mm. uh, on Beacon Hill, which is where most things happen. (laughs) Every year, the retailers really want a sales tax holiday. And from their perspective, especially the ones that uh, live and work along the New Hampshire border, uh, tax-free New Hampshire, for them, it's very much a boost. And they argue also for people who do the sales tax holiday, they're sticking it to the government by uh, buying something uh, without the 6.25 sales tax. So the retailers always push it. And this year, as well as last year, the state said, basically, we don't have the money because the state tends to lose about somewhere in between 20 to 30 million in revenue every time this happens. Governor Patrick has signed it in the past. This year, Governor Baker uh, made a last minute push to get it done for August 1920th. And the legislature said, nope, we're out. See you in September. Because it it. looked like it was going to go through at the last minute. I was thinking, oh, well, I think it's going to come around and then nothing. Yeah, it it was definitely one of those things where when Governor uh, Baker threw his weight behind it, uh, there was questions like, oh, maybe there is something going on here. But both uh, House Speaker Bob DeLeo and Senate President Stan Rosenberg slammed the door shut on that. They said the state's fiscal condition isn't in a place where we can afford to take that kind of hit. Um, Now, the retailers will say on sales tax holiday weekends, you tend to have more employees working. So that means payroll taxes come into play. And they also say it's in general just an economic boost for the mom and pop stores. And I think from the progressive side, they progressives argue it's not a great way to manage money, and especially when, when we're talking about programs that, that are getting cut or in danger of being cut. Well, it's kind of interesting because in the, if you really think about it, it's public money in the end. All right, so it's my taxes going to fund this, right, to begin with. Then I get all excited and go not have any taxes that I'm not paying in the moment, <laughs> and then the state loses money, so then i got to pay more. Ta- you know, so it's kind of a 
but I love it, I must say. So. Are you one of those? <laughs> I'm one of those people. I, I know people hate it, but I yeah, love it. Yeah, <laughs> because I've actually been on vacation, uh, in, you know, like down the Cape on when it's a sales tax holiday, and we will sit there and just like, look at those people who went out and bought a TV screen today so they could save the 6%, you know, that they probably could lower anyway. You know, it's like Jordan's Furniture will we'll give a discount. You know, yes, they're going to have a sale are. anyway that's going to drive people in, which other retailers could do. You know, it doesn't. But they're big. They can do no, that. They, but it's really, yeah. you know, that's not a huge margin on a lot of things. It doesn't have to be store-wide. You know, there's a lot of things that retailers could do. But I think, to Gin's point, we're not in great, we're in almost terrible financial shape in Massachusetts. So it's a bad message to send saying we're going to let you keep your tax dollars when we need your tax dollars. But at the same time, the retailers are getting killed by online purchase, you know, mm-hmm. the Amazons and buying things online without taxes associated to them. I, I suggested to the retail um, association boss, well, why don't we try and tax them? Let me be a real liberal progressive and say tax Amazon more mm-hmm. for, you know, their online purchases and maybe that'll take the heat off. But I am so neutral on the issue. Like, I don't care if it happens and Right. And there's there's no way almost to measure the kind of psychological boost that, uh, as Gin mentioned, the mom and pop stores, the smaller retailers that maybe aren't going to benefit in an immediate financial sense from people coming out to that. But just the idea that if you've got the sales tax holiday, you're going to get out into the neighborhood, you're going to go shop in places you usually wouldn't. So the idea being that later, once those taxes are back in, you've established this new pattern, these new places that you're going to come check out. It's the same logic that goes into shopping local weekends that they have, like small business Saturdays. Or the old loss leader. Exactly. But at the same time, while they repeat... You know, if they're just buying based on price, are they really going to come back to your store? Exactly. And that, yeah, I I wish there was Hmm. a better way to measure kind of the return that you get on that on the longer term. Well, I should be in somebody's focus group because I am so (laughs) easily marketed (laughs) to. But it's a popular, I mean, it totally is a popular thing. We see we see it and, and we see the retailers, they get amped up about it. They do the ads and mm-hmm. it's it's always this expectation. It's like, yeah. this is this is going to happen. Everyone loves a reason. You know, this is how we got Valentine's Day and Mother's Day <laughs> and Father's That's Day. True. And, all, you know, so it's just a hook. I think, you know, the, I'd love to see someone really study the impact, like Jennifer said, to see if it really has a dollars and cents impact and if it helps the local retailers. Well, well I, I know it makes you happy. Oh, that, it makes me very happy. Yeah. And from a psychological standpoint, it feels like a holiday. I'm telling you, this is how it works. It feels like uh, a fake Twitter holiday, too. Okay, well, whoever's doing the study, that's what it feels like. <laughs> now, um, again, you have this other thing about permanent Massachusetts sales tax holiday and the retailers trying to get this ballot question. I had heard they were trying to do this, but now what would happen if what they want ended up on the ballot? So basically, this is an option that the retailers are weighing because they're so frustrated with the state. And what they're doing is the ballot process is long and complicated. You have to gather a bunch of signatures, got to jump through a lot of hoops before getting onto the November 2018 ballot. But retailers are saying, well, you know what? How about we propose a permanent sales tax holiday so we don't have to go through this every single year of will there be one or won't there be one? And that way it would also be automatically built into the budget where the state is going to be like, okay, we're going to lose about $25 million. Um, And that's what they're trying to do. They're also trying to do it as part of a package to roll back the state sales tax from 625 to 4 or 5%. That's not happening, right? 
Probably not. I mean, we'll see. What, what we've seen a lot with the ballot, a lot of ballot questions over the years is that interest groups propose these as a way to get leverage over the legislature and over the executive branch. To make them do their jobs. Right. <laughs> well, that, that worked really well with marijuana now, didn't it? No, oh, yeah. So. But, I mean, that's, that's no, how you but know. it did. I mean, I mean, no, and we got it. I mean, well, okay. we, I said the voters. The voters yeah. got legalized marijuana. And then the legislature. And then they're going to drag yeah. their feet and take forever. Right. But, you know, if they hadn't voted on it, Okay. And All that's right. how universal health care reform happened, Romney Care. Mm-hmm. It was actually activists who gathered momentum, mass momentum, and said, like, all right, well, we're going to put this on the ballot if you don't do something. And Romney and the other legislators gathered together and said, all right, let's get some form of universal health care. And it seems to be happening on other issues, minimum wage, $15 million, the constitutional amendment that would raise taxes on earnings over $1 million. Millionaire tax. Right. Yeah. So, well, even some biggies are behind that. Right. But, but Jennifer, it's permanent sales tax in I mean, Tanzania. As far as the referendum goes, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very unlikely. Yeah, but again, thing. just from a leverage perspective, it's smart to, in a weird way, overshoot to over ask and then say basically like in the case of marijuana, whatever got passed through there was not at all what most people actually wanted, what they'd actually read through. So if they're trying to kind of take this shoot the moon approach to a permanent tax holiday, lower the overall sales tax rate, if some variant of that looks like it might go through, it might end up just prompting someone to aim for more of a compromise solution. Well, I will say this for those of us who are easily marketed to, <laughs> then it's not special <laughs> every year. Right. I just want to say. That's so funny. The mystery so, is gone. <laughs> I, I love that. Don't don't lower my taxes because it's not a surprise. No, no. I mean, no the, the permanent tax holiday, the lower the taxes, yeah, yeah that's good. Oh, yeah. But I'm saying the permanent yeah. tax holiday is not special. Let's move on. Um, Sue, this is a great story. This hotel Alexandra. Oh boy. Five story structure, corner of Washington Street and Massachusetts Avenue. It's been bought and it's it, going to. Yeah, know what's it gonna is happen. an amazing yeah. building, right? So if you're at the corner of Washington and Mass Ave and you're at the light, if you're like heading into the south end and look to the left on the corner, it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous building. And it's dilapidated and it's falling apart. And there's like this beauty store that's been on the, the ground floor forever. The Scientologists bought it several years ago to much, much horror in the South End, that the the Scientology was coming to Boston, their headquarters were going to be there, they were going to buy it. Some people were like, listen, I love the building, (laughs) I don't care who buys it, just please, please, you know, make it beautiful again. Somehow they report, the Scientologists, that they didn't have enough money, which I don't believe for a second, to redo the building and they moved their headquarters somewhere else. So again, it's been sitting in this limbo on the corner. And finally, the common group management, which uh, the son of the CVS founder is involved in it, Mm -hmm. and they purchased it. I don't know what their plans for it are, but hopefully they will renovate it. And I think it's going to be really the gem on that corner that's really good. I mean, that's the whole Washington Main Street there's always the talk about once you pass over Mass Ave heading that way, it becomes Roxbury and not the South End anymore. But I think this is something that could actually unify the neighborhood mm-hmm. in a different way. So everyone's very excited about it. And we'll just, we're looking forward to having that gem just gleaming again. Well, they're talking about, again, several options, mixed-use development, a boutique hotel, or all residential. That, I think any of those would be very interesting. Of course, mixed use, because everybody needs some affordable housing, is probably excellent there. But 
what to do, you know. Yeah, and I think getting foot traffic in there is important mm-hmm. too, of, of having a good mix so that you, you keep people there or you keep a steady flow of people. That's pretty important. That's something I've found in writing stories about economic development. That, that's been a key part of it. And that's the next, you know, that block up to Milnea Cass of, mm-hmm. of Columbus has so much potential too. There's already some great antique stores there. You've got the ball field there. You know, it just really would be a nice connector also, up into Dudley. I mean, that right. would be the, the other natural progression is connecting the neighborhoods, which I think makes it all much more walkable and much more connected. And it could serve as a model, too. I mean, mm. Boston's in the middle of this huge development boom. There's a lot of new housing that's going in, a lot of new mm-hmm. building. But you've got, I mean, anyone that's seen it, as Sue mentioned, it's this gorgeous, gorgeous building that's just languished. On the outside. On the, yeah. out- well, on the outside. Because well, yeah, uh, no one can get in there. Right. Um, but that's that's a very good question as far as city planning goes, is Boston Boston's very into its historic buildings. Let's see if we can actually modernize this one so that you keep that facade, but then also make it work for this boom that we're going through well, right now. Well, that's, that's the key because sometimes some of these large purchasers have bought a beautiful building and then they've, quote unquote, modernized it mm-hmm. out of its historic framework. And mm-hmm. it's, and that's just really too bad. And I don't know why they, they don't get that people really appreciate that. Even people who like modern architecture appreciate your sort of keeping the culture and the vibe of the community on the outside mm-hmm. and then, you know, do funky things inside if you want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, think it's great. Can't wait to see what they're going to do mm-hmm. with it. And obviously they have enough money to do something I with it. I hope so. I mean, I'm concerned that the Church of Scientology didn't have enough money, so I'm hoping they have <laughs> enough money. They say, well, the Scientology people bought it for 4.5. I don't see yeah, how the, much um, these people bought it yeah, for. Yeah, I, I don't think they released they so much, yeah. but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Gin Dupchis of Mass Live, Sue O'Connell of NECN, and Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. And we're discussing this week's local news you may have missed. All right. So, again, we've had these conversations about the Pawtucket Red Sox many, many <laughs> times. First they're gone, now they're too big, now they're going to stay. Now they may be coming back to Massachusetts. What's the deal? So uh, the the Pawsox, they're right now in Rhode Island, and they're going back and forth with the with Rhode Island politicians about potentially building a new stadium and whether they want to stay in Rhode Island. And I think as part of those conversations, Larry Lucchino, who's the, the co-owner of the Pawtucket Red Sox, and I should say they are the AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, Larry Lucchino has said, you know what, Like, let, let's talk about moving to Massachusetts, and the conversations have started up again. So he's been to Worcester twice. Mass Live has reported that he's uh, toured some of the area, the Canal District, and Springfield uh, could be in the mix as well. And for both Worcester and Springfield, something like this would be a pretty pretty good get, a pretty good boost. Worcester right now is undergoing a renaissance. We've reported on that extensively. They're, the dining there has boomed. Uh, they've got a mini development boom going on. And the city is making a pretty hard push for the Paw Sox, saying, like, that'd be great. And maybe call them the Woo Sox. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's something that, that definitely I think Massachusetts is interested in. I talked to uh, Jay Ash, the, the Governor Baker's Secretary for Economic Development, and he said, you know, I've, I've talked with the Paw Sox, uh, Larry Lucchino, and, you know, we'll see what they say. And I think it's possible that Larry Lucchino is getting back to a, an earlier theme of leverage. He might be looking to Massachusetts as a form of leverage on Rhode Island. But who knows? This this could be real. Well, we've been talking about this, the, the Paw Sox, in some form or fashion, I would say for the last year or so. And the last story that we did, Lucchino seemed to be saying, give us all of this stuff, Rhode Island, or maybe we yeah, don't stay here. Yeah, $83 million <laughs> yeah. Dollar mm-hmm. stadium yeah. is what they were looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
and and some of that would be coming from the city or state, uh, like Providence or something like that. I, I will say my so my wife is a Rhode Island native, and and she would be very sad because the Postocks are, are a very integral part of the Rhode Island brand. Um, she's taking me to the stadium. She actually has a, an old faded uh, cup that has like the longest baseball game, thirty three innings or something like that, mm-hmm. commemorating that. And it's it's a great ball field in Pawtucket. It's a great experience. But that kind of economic development, if that comes to Worcester or Springfield, that can really accelerate a lot of things. Well, what I wouldn't want to see it happen, because what I've been, you know, I'm not a big baseball person, but what I've been so taken with is that, at least in Rhode Island, Sue, it's very family-oriented. Mm-hmm. You can, Everybody can go. It's a reasonable price. And you price. can afford to go. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, that's the, you know, right. when the Buck yeah. and Rocks, you know, we would go to those games, and they were inexpensive, and you could enjoy them, and the ballpark was fun. So I wish there was a way that they could keep the, them and Worcester could get another team. You know, I wish that there was more for, you know, because we don't have the same collegiate baseball that no. other places have. You know, and during the summer down on Cape Cod, you certainly got all those those yeah. young men down there playing in that circuit. It's just, you know, baseball is just great. There should be more of it. So, so what I fear is that they move back and then they become the Red Sox on a smaller scale, meaning it's very expensive right. and mm-hmm. it doesn't look and ha- or have the feel of the way it is in Rhode Island mm-hmm. now, even though it would be in those communities that could use a boost and could presumably enjoy building a tradition like that. Do you? Yep. Yeah, do yeah. You, I mean, I, I, I'm, I kind of echo the concerns that's of some of the Worcester lawmakers that it, it does feel very much like they're being used as a ploy f- to leverage Rhode Island. So we'll see what happens. All right. Now, Jennifer, mm-hmm. slow streets, two yeah. new zones in Dorchester. Now, I have to tell you, somehow I missed the story that you applied to be a slow street. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And that's the essence of what your so piece is about. So many. Okay. So so what's funny is the whole city did not miss the boat. There were 47 communities that did yeah. apply to be part of it. But it's such a funny thing because there were these two pilot periods and one of which is the Talbot Norfolk Triangle in Dorchester that kind of scooted out at some point last year and everyone was vaguely aware that some people were doing something with speed bumps in some little blocks of the city. But then late last year, there started to be more of a push on the local civic level because they were going to be lowering the speed limits around the city to 25 miles an hour. And and just be clear, you know, what the slow streets means. Oh, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So the slow streets initiative is basically a traffic calming planning study for these very small pockets of the city. So this could be like anywhere from like 12 to 15 blocks. And you look at areas that have had high crash incidents. Um, They have a lot of kids, um, older residents. And the idea is you go through, you study the existing traffic patterns, and then the city comes in, talks to the community, and they make recommendations. Are they going to change some curbs? Are they going to improve signage? Are they going to add speed humps, speed bumps? Basically, try and fix some of the areas that have the worst traffic incidences in the city. And there were just five new uh, zones selected for 2017 out of, again, 47 of which applied. The first four of them, the top four, because they were based on like a rating of, again, those factors like age, traffic instances, uh, walkability, access to public transit, too. The top four were among the highest ranked in those categories. But then the city kind of ran out of resources. So the Uh-oh. fifth and sixth top picks actually were too big. So because they're supposed to be small. Exactly, because okay. they're supposed to be... Well, they're supposed to be small, but basically, like, the city took on some pretty large 
traffic troubled areas like Grove Hall, this this area mm. of Grove Hall that they picked is a pretty large zone. They picked a big chunk of Chinatown as well. So after they'd committed to those, they just couldn't then move on to the fifth and sixth largest one. So they had to take kind of like a tiny little three-mile area as well and tack that on there because the city seems to have this, this habit of they've got these good initiatives, there's a lot of buy-in from the communities, and then they realize that they have a resource issue. So then you kind of end up with this two-year program where there's only five zones involved and it's going to be renewed annually. But again, it's these tiny little mm. areas of the city that are going to see these improvements. So, Sue, I remember when this was first introduced in public conversation, mm-hmm. people said, this is not going to work. You know, yeah, well, yeah. I, you know. I, I think I think what people are beginning to understand is that it has to work. Mm-hmm. You know, in the South End alone, mm-hmm. we've had a, a couple of fatalities, people in crosswalks. I totally support the mayor's administration's efforts on traffic control, changing the speed limit to 25 unless otherwise marked in Boston, which some people still don't get that unless Mm -hmm. it's marked, it's 25 miles an hour. And I'm going to say something fairly controversial. As much as I love Lyft and Uber, a taxi driver is a better bad driver than a Lyft and Uber driver. Mm, so because? when because they're better at driving bad than Uber oh, and I Lyft see. is, right? <laughs> you mean so, in general? Okay. In general. So okay. if you know the taxi driver wants to go pick up a fare and is going to bang a U-turn in the middle of Columbus oh, Ave, he mm. or she is going to be better at it than the Uber driver and the Lyft. I mean, I pulled. I was on my way to the South End um, candidate forum for the city council district. And I basically pulled an Uber driver over and rolled down the window to yell at her for changing lanes on Tremont Street without a blinker and going 30 miles an hour and almost hitting someone in a crosswalk. Mm. So, um, you know, we need to have these efforts. And as we have fewer people driving, I imagine, you know, because of Uber and Lyft, we now have more pickup and drop-offs, which is also a different type of driving Mm. than just driving to your destination looking for a place to park. So, you know, I I haven't talked to a South End resident that is not fully on board with Mm. doing more to calm traffic, to discourage cars, and to, to really just try and make the streets safer for people crossing them. Well, I guess the issue is then, again, are they going to really enforce this? Because um, if we're starting with the premise that Sue just put out there, that most people don't even know that unless otherwise notified, it's 25 miles an hour. And I'm going to say if you stop five people on the street, they would not know that. Yeah, Uh, they also don't know that they have to stop for people in crosswalks unless it's at a a signal intersection. Yeah. One one thing uh, Mm -hmm. wasn't one of the residents I was talking to who headed up this West of Washington coalition actually mentioned is – so much of the time, it seems like almost a cultural thing, mm, yeah. which is a bizarre way to think about driving. Mm. But they have these streets, and she says, I have I have lost count of how many mirrors I have lost just mm-hmm. because people see this road, and they're like, okay, just zoom down it. I don't even care what the speed limit is. After they oh, lowered the oh, speed... Oh, like a side street or Exactly. Yes, like it's a side it. street okay. where before... Mm. went At the speed limit mm-hmm. where it was before, like 23% of folks going down the street were speeding. When they lowered it, it jumped up to 51 People, wow. people literally did not know or did not care that. The and the other thing you have going wow. on, which is another one of these good bad things, you have these programs like these applications like Waze, right? Which yeah, you can type right. in where you're going, and they give you some right. cockamamie way to get there <laughs> that's going to save you time, save gas, and get you there quicker. But you're going down residential streets that barely ever have any traffic. That's a good point. And you aren't know? equipped for it. And aren't it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, going through Mission Hill and Fort Hill on streets. I've lived in the city for almost, you know, 20 years, and I'm like wow, I had no idea the street connected to this street. Yeah. Bad news for the residents on that street. Yeah. So, yeah. 
it's a big problem that needs more money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that and that comes down to the enforcement too of of enforcement costs money too. And That's if they what I mean. Yeah. If yeah. they can't fully implement the 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 overall plan, then how much money are they going to have for enforcement? And by the way, do you have any sense of what? So I get caught doing this. How much? What is the fine? What is the, you know? I think th- I don't know, but I, 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 I'm trying to think what the, the crosswalk fine is, is pretty stiff if they catch you, but yeah. they have to actually have a sting out to catch you. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I haven't seen any. I, I, I've called the city um, and not followed up to find out if they've actually done any of their crosswalk stings, which Does I hope it, they do before school gets back. Yeah, because, you know, if that gets reported, you know, that mm-hmm. there's some people who are actually caught doing it, then people have to pay more attention. But you see, since I didn't even know you had to apply for this thing, I am really out of it about what all the parameters <laughs> yeah. are with it. Yeah. And and I I think I thought, sorry, police persons, um, that there's very little enforcement of this. So I don't know that. Uh-uh. No, know. there probably yeah. isn't. You know, and there are other mm-hmm. areas of the country that are doing a more grassroots approach to this traffic calming where you've got nonprofits that will go out and do a temporary uh, traffic circle or temporary uh-huh. uh, and and just see how it works get the residents impact on it and and um, opinion on it and then pull it away and then the city can invest in it but that's a whole nother layer of, yeah uh. and I mean obviously the residents are going to be weighing in on you know nobody knows these areas better than the people that already live there until so. then I'm just going to be driving around yelling exactly at people. Right. <laughs> yeah they should they should just put Sue out in the corner Do not speed down Marcella right. Street in Fort Hill because I'm there I can't so um so just Jennifer Right away, I can't tell again when this actually when this stuff is actually in for the communities that did win uh, the slow streets yeah, designation. Yeah, there there's no specific timeline okay. on it yet. It's kind of vaguely this fall we'll come back to you guys. All right, so we will know by speed bumps and extra stuff. That's what we're going to know? Yes. Okay, very good. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our local news roundtable guests, Gen Doomchus, Sue O'Connell, and Jennifer Smith. You just heard her. We're talking about the local news that you may have missed this week. So, Sue, back to you, yes. because... This is a real issue, and it's um, often highlighted in the South End because it's gorgeous over there. Um, but there are a lot of South End renters who are being pushed out, and they're now engaged in a pretty significant legal fight to stop a particular eviction. Yeah, there's uh, a, uh, a, a, a family that lives over by the ink block on uh, Washington Street, uh, which is where the, the, the Whole Foods is at most people. Very, don't go in there if you don't want to see anybody. I know. Everybody's there. That's two places <laughs> continue. I, two places I kill, a stop and shop over Mission Hill and the Whole Foods. But, uh, <laughs> yes, continue. <laughs> um, and this is an interesting, you know, this is kind of an atypical story because uh, the family that owns the building, one of the family members lives in it. Uh, they were unclear as to how they actually owned it due to some will stuff and probate issue. And um, one of the, 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 the tenants there who worked in a local bakery, which just recently closed, has lived there forever, was paying very little rent. And then they decided they want to sell the house, up, mm-hmm. uh, sell the building, up the rent. Um, what happens to this family now that has lived in the South End their entire lives uh, and now can't afford to live anywhere else because they've got this this very great low rent, which you're not going to get anywhere else. Nowhere else. And, um, we should say the average rent in Boston is $2,000. Right, for mm-hmm. a, a two-bedroom. One bedroom? No, one bedroom. 1.5. Yeah, yeah. Right, er, correct so, me, Jennifer. That's right. I, I, I mean, I've, I've seen yeah. bedrooms, one bedrooms listed for as much as 3000 a month. Right. What I'm yeah. saying, yeah. But the average. The average, the average, yeah. yeah. Like average. It's, okay. it's around there. It's in the 2000 right. range. Yeah. So they are sort of got this stay from eviction because they don't know really who owns the building now because of this. Mm-hmm. But this is what's happening all across yeah. the city, especially when some of these uh, 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 
hourly wage jobs that people move into the city to take, and then they disappear because they're being replaced by high-end housing with very few affordable. And when we say affordable, you need to know that that doesn't really mean anything. Right. There's no, no set unit of what affordable means. And they have no place to move uh, to live in the city. So they would need to move further out or just move out of the city entirely. And, you know, what we're going to end up with is, uh, you know, a city without people who can work in the hourly wage uh, jobs and it's it's the challenge. It's happening all through Chinatown, yeah. and you've got you know it's a it's a very complicated issue where sometimes you have people living in illegal situations mm-hmm. where they may have too many people in the apartment. The landlord isn't uh, safety conscious or morally conscious, and uh, but they're able to afford and live there, and then they get evicted and they and they can't find a place to move. So I don't know what the answer to it is except to have more affordable housing units and. I would push, you know, Tito Jackson, who's a city councilor who's running for mayor, you know, it's funny. He said that this at the end of one of his um, uh, conversations with with a reporter where he he would be best if he starts talking about what affordable means. Maybe the city council, maybe the state lawmakers need to define what affordable is. Because market rate, what does that mean, Right. right? So how many units in it is affordable based on what the neighborhood based on the average, based on what the, the average income of a family in Boston is, uh, based on what the, the lowest income people could afford, I think we need to really have a definition of what affordable housing is per person. So uh, vis-a-vis that, let me just point out that my eyes flew out of my yeah, head when I saw this, <laughs> that the apartments rent in the ink block complex, mm-hmm. we just talked about the ink block Whole Foods where everybody is, Upwards, upwards of six thousand mm-hmm, dollars a mm-hmm, month. Mm-hmm. That's and, the, that's and they're building unique. another building right. over there. And that's not unique now. And that now remember in that area in the South End, which where Boston, the Boston Herald was for many yes. years, right near the expressway. You, you notice not many people are complaining about the biolab anymore, hurting poor no, people because no. there doesn't seem to be any poor people left in in the South End. That's right. Um, but uh, you know. Now that whole area is is renovated. It's great. It's got nightlife. It's got a supermarket. It's but got an art. Who can era, live there? Neighborhood. I can't live there. Who no, can live there? Not six thousand dollars a month. Yeah. And, wow. it, and it's also happening. These are apartments, by the way. I just yeah. want to be clear. No, not yeah. condominiums, okay. right. not houses, yeah. okay. not mansions. Yes, Ken. And this ahead. and this is having a ripple effect. I mean, it's I'm seeing it in my hometown of Quincy, where right. where the rents are going up, and and you've got you've got I've I've seen buildings like the Ink Block going up in Quincy, and and their main selling point is. Uh, you know, we'll we'll charge you half the rent that you would pay in Boston. Uh, and still, it's like these pretty fancy, uh, pretty fancy buildings. They've got like pet grooming uh, stations in the, uh, downstairs uh, in the lobby or whatever. It's 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 having a ripple effect across the region. And, yeah. I, and you know, I know I've talked to you about it, Jennifer. Oh, the, in Dorchester, day. you know, people are there's like vultures over there swirling around trying yeah. to you know get it, those houses. It's crazy. I mean, I do want to say one thing mm-hmm. um, about the the idea of how we define affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's been more of a push lately because affordable housing sounds really good if you're going from like a marketing perspective or if you're, for instance, running for re-election for mayor. Um, but uh, there's a push more on the development side to classify that more precisely as income restricted, um, where it's not calling where it's not calling it affordable because people assume if you're saying it's affordable. Anybody who lives in the area should be able to literally afford it, mm. um, whereas more more accurately when we're talking about affordable housing 
we're talking about these very specific income levels that are categorized by a federal standard. You know, yes, HUD, right. HUD sets it right. out. So when people talk about the idea of reframing affordable to be specific to a neighborhood, there's kind of this difficulty because the Department of Neighborhood Development has to meet these federal standards. And if you're talking about you know, inspectional services, if you're talking about um, D&D, if you're talking about just general city and state guidelines, you want them to be working off of the same numbers. Right. So the issue isn't necessarily that we should be, in, in my opinion, that we should be um, trying to lower the rate of affordable, but try and aim to build more housing at like the 30% level rather right. than just saying we should change what the affordable standard is in general. And, and if we've and learned anything it. from Exactly, the, and define it better and the, more clearly. The kids fighting uh, 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 Boston Garden about yes. agreements, you know, that they mm-hmm. were supposed to get these fundraisers. Right. Our city was supposed to get fundraisers, exactly. and we didn't because no one enforced it. That's we know right. that the BRA, the former BRA, whatever it's called BPA now, the, BP, now. the Boston Redevelopment Authority, you know, had bad books under the Menino administration. Mm-hmm. Yes. No one knew. On paper. On paper, <laughs> not filed, yeah. not collecting things from developers. So, right. you know, whenever you see something go up and they say, we're going to promise to do this, you better find someone who's going to keep yeah. track of that problem. And, right. and confusion yes, yes. almost always yeah. benefits bureaucracy. Yep. That's the thing. It doesn't really ever benefit the casual resident. Well, this is really significant of a lot of things going on in town, and I know people should keep an eye on it because uh, it, it, it ain't over. Mm-hmm. Um I thank you all for joining me. I, I hate uh, leading on a down note, but that's what the news <laughs> well, is. I'll be out in no. the streets enforcing, enforcing <laughs> your well, driving. Good. So well, there good. You go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Again, Dupchis is the State House reporter for Mass Live. Sue O'Connell is the host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. And Jennifer Smith is the news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Coming up, a rarely discussed moment in Cambridge. History. A group of women marched into a Harvard building and didn't leave for 10 days. Now, a documentary called Left on Pearl is telling their story. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.